On this week's episode, I have Daniel Barber. He is the CEO and founder of DataGrail, and we're going to be covering topics ranging from what do these privacy laws mean from CCPA, GDPR, how Daniel got to this point, and uh, kind of take you down the path of understanding how an automated solution can actually help your business. Daniel, thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, me, a pleasure. Glad we're able to find some time, and yeah, looking forward to uh, the topics ahead. Absolutely. So I'd love to have the audience kind of hear about your background, how you got here, and then we'll kick it off from there. Yeah. So as many of you may pick up, I grew up in Australia. Try not to hold it against me. But yeah, spent time in the US, um, spent time in Europe, did my MBA in Japan, worked for a Japanese company for a period of time, moved to the Bay Area around 2010, 2011. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate to work at a company called Responsus. We were sort of recently publicly traded. Had a great run through that experience. The company was later acquired by Oracle, and you know my experience then went into data products, third-party applications, and really I've spanned about ten years now focused on go-to-market, so sales, marketing, customer success, in either data products or third-party applications. And what I saw as I met my two co-founders at a company called Node.io was that businesses were using increasing amount of personal data, an increasing number of systems to manage that personal data to sort of operate their business. And that, as we sort of went into 2018, it was very clear privacy reforms like the GDPR were going to be very difficult for businesses to you know, achieve compliance. And the idea of sustaining compliance or continuous compliance was practically impossible. And so this culminated in the formation of DataGrail in sort of the early 2018. And we've had a very successful run over the last coming up two years now, bringing on some amazing B2B brands and amazing B2C brands, folks like Intercom and Okta and Overstock.com and Restoration Hardware, and a number of leading brands to manage their privacy program for continuous compliance. Awesome. I guess we touched on, you know, privacy laws are coming into play. I know uh, if you're on any website these days, you see the uh, do not sell my data. I don't know how many people actually click into it or know what that actually means. So. Maybe help us understand at a baseline, you know, CCPA, GDPR, these acronyms and privacy. What do those mean to people? Yeah. So at the highest level, right, if we just zoom out for the two of us and think about what does this mean for us, it's actually super simple, right? People expect two things. They expect transparency and control. And so if you look at the themes throughout all of the privacy regulations, they have those two constructs which really just means the consumer, if I'm an individual, I want to be able to contact a business and say, what type of information do you have about me? And then I want to have control over that to say, I will allow you to process this information, or actually I don't allow you to process any of my information because I don't want to do business with you. And so those two constructs, transparency and control, permeate all of the different privacy regulations that we see today. But there are nuances in the way that is constructed and then needs to be executed from a privacy compliance standpoint. Gardner kind of said it best. If you look at today's regulations and you look at the population on the planet that have data protection, we're roughly at about 10%, right? So 2020, about 10% of the world's population have data protection. So it can exercise those two rights of transparency and control that I just described. However, if we look at by 2023, Gartner expects that number will go to 65%. So now we're saying that, you know, just with the GDPR, which protects Europe and California's regulation, which is designed for California, although it has been extended to the rest of the country in some cases, 
that regulation and those protections will expand to 65% of the world's population, which means you have a number of different regulatory requirements that businesses need to comply with, all encapsulating those two constructs, but slightly nuanced as the requirements dictate. I guess when we're talking about, I want control over my data, I don't want you to to use my data and, and I might uh, have an issue with a particular company or they might have had a data breach and I'm worried about it. I want them to get rid of it. What's a normal course of action that I could take? Just simply contacting them and hoping they're going to do that. And that's just, you know, I got to trust the system. I got to trust they're going to take care of what they need to do and and scrub my data from all the systems they have. So that's a good question. I spoke on NPR earlier in the year. We did a, um, a survey of 2,000 consumers across the United States. And what we found was that over 80% of them expect what you just described, right? Meaning that if someone has a data breach or you don't want a business to use your information in a certain way, you want control over your information. And so to do that, to exercise control over your information today, the way that mechanically works for people in California is you could go to someone's privacy policy. So you go to a business that you shop or a hotel that you've stayed in and you could say, okay, I'm going to go to the privacy policy. I'm going to look at what is described and file what we would describe as a California consumer privacy request or a DSR, so data subject request. And that request would likely require some form of verification. So it could be completed using a form or it could be completed using an email submission. But there should be some form of identity verification that the individual needs to go through. And then after that process, if you're looking to delete your information, so I indicate to the business that you don't want them processing your information any further, the business would need to confirm confirmation within 45 days. And so that's the sort of requirements for the CCPA at the highest level. There are obviously nuances to that as well, which we could go into probably for hours well beyond this podcast. But at the highest level, that would sort of be the process if you were to try to do that with a business that you interact with today. How successful? Like, uh, I mean, that sounds like a lot of work from my standpoint, having to go dig up all that information. I, I've, I actually, in preparation of this, I pulled up a couple of websites, do not sell my uh, information. It's a lot of stuff. Like it's a lot of words, lots of legalese, and you have to dig through it. I mean, what's the likelihood? I mean, I guess this is a regulation. People have to comply and they have 45 days. Like, what is the complexity on the business side? So for me, it's easy. I Well, not easy. I make the request and then the business has it. What happens once it's behind the scenes? Like, what's the moving parts to make sure that they comply so that they're not going to get dinged with a fine from the state of California or another entity? It's really hard. You know, at the highest level, I would say, like, businesses were not prepared to do this, right? Businesses did not set up infrastructure to kind of you know, complete this activity. We surveyed 300 privacy and security professionals last year in a cost of continuous compliance report. You can find that on our website. But that report found that 70% of the respondents said the systems they have in place today wouldn't scale with further regulations. So this is prior to CCPA going into effect. And what we found was also that one privacy request, so your submission to say, hey, I want to delete my information or I want you to not sell my information or I want to know what information you have about me, that request would go through on average 26 people before it was completed. Now, the likelihood of human error in that particular case is extremely high and the operational load that's put on the business, especially during this period of digital transformation, is really hard. 
And this is largely because if you just step back and look at the business problem that we've created for ourselves and many of the other you know, folks you may have had on this show are you know, creating fantastic technology solutions to increase you know, XYZ, whatever they're trying to sell. The problem is, though, is that increases the number of systems, which increases the number of places personal data may exist. So the two stats I would leave you with that kind of emphasize that point, on average today, an Okta customer, now Okta is used as a single sign-on platform. So when you join a company, if the company uses Okta as a member of the marketing team, you would get access to, let's say, your 22 tools that you need. That might include Zoom, like the one that we're using right now. It might include Slack. It might include a whole bunch of other systems. The average Okta customer uses 88 applications today. Now, the thing is, if a company has been using Okta for four years, the average Okta customer of four years uses 190 applications. The 88 number has increased by 21% in the last three years. So this number is not slowing down, which means actually it's even more difficult year on year for a business to try to figure this out. Because that number that I shared earlier, 26 people involved in processing your information and mine, is only set to increase as more applications are deployed across the company's environment. I was just thinking, I mean, with all this talk about no code and there's tons of platforms to connect APIs to talk to each other, it's so easy to do. You know, I wanted to set up a form. I wanted to do something else. So if somebody... You know, you have my information as an example, and I had gone onto some company's website and I filled out some form somewhere. They might have forgotten about it because they captured it once and I made the request and they're not going to realize that's through maybe some type form where they captured, you know, my request of, uh, you know, signing up for a demo or something is still there. That outlier would be in violation of, of a privacy law potentially. Yep, that's exactly right. So the likelihood of human error when you have things operated manually like that, right, where you have potentially 26 people, and to use your example, right, the admin of Typeform perhaps is just not included in that process, right? Perhaps they bought the system after the organization did a mapping exercise. So if you just think about how you would do this mechanically without a system in place, you would have to have some form of inventory, right, of like all of the applications that you have across your organization. And that in itself is like an oxymoron, right? Of like an inventory of systems. How would you do that? Obviously, now I can go use a credit card and buy an application like Typeform right now and deploy it at DataGrail and start collecting your personal information on our website and notify no one. And so that happens across a lot of organizations and that's incredibly challenging. So that inventory is sort of the broken foundation, right? So as a result, like it's very likely that someone using the Typeform application is not even included in the DSR workflow to actually make that process be completed, right? So the entire piece is a challenging exercise for businesses, and it honestly won't slow down because there's more and more investment in more and more applications. I was just thinking like just the sheer numbers that we're talking about, how many times marketing departments are like, hey, we're going to set up a landing page. We're going to test. You know, Sometimes they might set up something quick and dirty and not even have a tool that they really were long-term going to use, but they captured information for X amount of time. And it's just a question of whose information's on there. And you know, obviously the likelihood of somebody requesting removal, I don't know what those percentages of are, if, you know, people asking to have their data removed. But I mean, that, that seems like those outliers, like you were saying, vary those 26 touch points, uh, having the inventory. 
that seems like, especially as the organization gets bigger, that would cost some sleepless nights for me if that was my uh, plate. Yeah. So there's a couple of numbers I'd give you there. So on average, we see based on our own internal data today, roughly 11 to 12 privacy requests on a monthly basis per 1 million consumers. So if you have a million consumers in your database of individuals, right, whether those are employees or candidates or customers or potential customers or previous employees, just cumulatively across all of the individuals that you house within your infrastructure, you'll see about 11 to 12 privacy requests on a monthly basis per 1 million consumers. That number has increased since the beginning of the year. So it is increasing, which is concerning if you're a business. And each one of those requests today, according to Gartner, costs $1,406 to process manually. So if you sort of think through, you know, the cost of going through those 26 people, the cost of potentially involving a lawyer to look over the information because you want to make sure that you don't supply the wrong information. And so on a monthly basis, if you've got a million consumers in across your databases, yeah, you're looking at about a $30,000 spend just operationally like making the program run as an example. Interesting. I didn't think it'd be that costly. That's a pretty big number. I guess from the standpoint of when a business, I mean, I'm sure you guys work with a lot of businesses that were like, I just didn't know, or potentially they're fine. When do they come looking for the solution? Is it they're forward thinking, realizing this is there and they're going to try to you know, be ahead of the game? Or is it because, hey, somebody had a request and something went wrong in actually fulfilling a request? That's a good question. I think there's sort of two scenarios right now. There are brands and we've seen them that really are seeing this change in the evolution of the consumer towards transparency and control as a means for competitive advantage, right? Because they know that the consumer is expecting these things, especially because of the countless bungles from a you know security and privacy standpoint. At this point, most consumers are very aware that they want their data to be kept safe and they want access to it if they request and they want it deleted if they request. And so, you know, you can see brands like Apple, for example, front and center advocating for privacy and using that as a method for sort of competitive advantage. And so I think That's common across brands that recognize this is an area that is sort of a socioeconomic trend towards transparency and control. Microsoft did the same, right? So if you look at their organization, you could honor California Consumer Privacy Act rights for just Californians. They came out and said, no, we're going to honor that across all of the United States. So clearly trying to advocate that this is, again, a competitive advantage. But the second bucket are, unfortunately, right, businesses that may receive a privacy request and are now concerned about how they manage that or are trying to ensure they have the right sort of controls in place to, you know, show compliance if they need to. So I would say there's sort of two buckets today. It's a challenging exercise for businesses. This is a new frontier around how to actually like manage consumer privacy. So the expectation that everyone will be in the first bucket is probably not fair. But, you know, I think you'll see over the next 18, 24 months, businesses really start to change in that area, especially as, you know, most people are working from home or operating their business in some capacity more online than they were before, which will just force that transformation. Interesting. I'm assuming people are working from home, they're working in silos and Maybe they run with more ideas on their own, which might create more gaps in the process because uh, yeah, we're just missing some of the physical controls of having people in one place. 
I'm curious, like from, you know, the reason I know you, you set out to create data grail to obviously target this from the standpoint of your solution, when it comes into play, I was curious, the 26 touch points, what happens to that? Like in terms of automating is obviously you have a ton of different systems we're talking about touching. How does something like an automated solution, like a data grail come in and help eliminate some of those, you know, gaps that manually couldn't otherwise be addressed? Yeah, so at a high level, right, an alternative to DataGrail, if you were just to use nothing, you know, you could keep a list of systems in a spreadsheet, right, that the organization uses. So if you're small enough, you know, a spreadsheet of the systems, if you're, you know, less than 100 employees or maybe 30 employees or less, right, that might be sufficient if you don't operate a very online business, you're more of an offline business, you probably could manage your list of systems in a spreadsheet. And, you know, you could have an inbox for privacy that would satisfy the requirement of being able to receive at least messages. But at a certain point, right, you sort of lose track of the systems that are in place. Your example earlier of, you know, a form being set up on the marketing website, that happens as soon as you get to a a threshold where you can't keep track of everything. And then you have this kind of like shadow IT that happens, right? Functions like deploy Slack and don't tell anyone or they buy something else and they don't tell anyone. And so, you know, in this circumstance, then you need something that is automatically detecting when there are new systems in place. So that's where, you know, DataGrail would come in and actually create this concept of a live data map. So as opposed to sort of a spreadsheet, the platform would actually automatically detect when new systems are added to the environment. And through that, you know, we now have over 300 pre-built integrations with all of the most common applications you would think of as well as internal tools that we have sort of a no-code onboarding approach. And that allows the company to be able to process a request in minutes. And most importantly, those 26 people that were part of the program before, that's reduced to one. So that happens because let's say you were the owner of HubSpot, right? You connect your HubSpot application to DataGrail as the admin of HubSpot, and then you are no longer involved in the privacy process anymore. So you can imagine the admins of all of these different applications, they are quite pragmatic in their advocacy for a platform that removes their involvement in privacy. Yeah, I mean, HubSpot, yeah, we actually use HubSpot. And um, the one thing I could tell you is if I had to go find somebody in there and delete it, it's not hard. But the problem is, is it doesn't stop there. I'd have to, like you said, carry that through. So the fact that uh, I was just thinking through the process of, all right, you don't have a solution, put a spreadsheet. And I was just thinking through how many different systems and we're not a massive company, we would actually have listed through. And I was like, oh man, I'd have to probably spend at least the five, 10 minutes to go you know, search for the person, make sure I delete them and then keep doing it. Like that's a nightmare. So I understand the cost and the chance of, I think we probably set up a couple of landing pages that I can't even remember logins to the websites. But if I was tracking it, I guess, you know, if I'm small enough on the spreadsheet, but if I'm big enough, on something like Data Grail, then at least when I get the request, I'm assuming I click a button, hopefully. <laughs> and it's not relying on my sheer recollection of... Uh... No, it would retrieve all of the data across all of those applications. Interesting. As well as new fields, right? Because this is where the holes really start to appear. You don't remember that you created a new field in HubSpot that tracks like the phone number or their Twitter handle or other personal information that might be related to that individual. And so that information, especially in an access request, needs to be shared, right? Because you have collected it. And so 
continually updating that schema, so the structure of all of the different data that exists within a system, that needs to be continually updated because, I mean, obviously you're creating custom fields in HubSpot or Salesforce or whatever the tool may be that you're using to kind of keep track of all of your individuals. I guess an interesting scenario, and I don't know how often this comes up, but I mean, the case where you're a single company of multiple brands and I'm interacting with those different brands, what happens to a request where I want to be removed and then not realizing that the same company has a different brand tomorrow, next week, I end up you know, buying something, signing up for something. Does that original request hold for the new data coming in in perpetuity? Or is it just a point in time where it's like, at this time, you no longer can have that person's information? Yeah, so this is where the nuances get difficult, right? So if you have, you know, parent subsidiaries, right? So that deletion is at that point in time. But what often happens, and we've seen this with, you know, future customers coming on, this is where you can get yourself into real sort of deep trouble. If you have a deletion request and then someone's information is reinserted, so unintentionally, without their consent, right? So they haven't said, you can track my information again. And just miraculously, now you're inserted into, let's say, the CRM. And this will happen from, you know, employees in the sales department, for example, that just, you know, unwillingly don't understand or are not aware that, you know, perhaps the individual has asked for deletion only a month ago. And then they could get in a marketing campaign. And that suppression list is really important and really hard to maintain because you would have to maintain all the individuals that have had their information deleted and maybe hash the information effectively so you're not actually keeping their information on file, if that makes sense, and maintain that they're not getting reinserted in other applications without their consent. So that creates its own set of problems. <laughs> it seems like a nightmare. I'm just thinking through that. And I'm sure like somebody's going to, without that suppression list, as you're mentioning, like that's an easy, easy, especially if you have subsidiaries or, you know, a sister brand in a company and all of a sudden you're back to marketing inadvertently. That seems like it's a, you step in something without even realizing it's scenario when it comes to privacy, I'm assuming. Yep. Unknowingly, companies will do that. It has happened. We maintain a suppression list for all of our customers. We notify them. If someone's information is reinserted, which can happen, and it has, and it will continue to happen because you know humans, by definition, will make mistakes, especially when they're unknowingly. They just, they're inserting the person's information because they think that perhaps that person is looking to receive information about their brand, when in actual fact, 30 days prior, they asked for inflation. Oh, wow. Yeah. I actually was thinking on a tangent that I get all these letters from companies, you know, to opt out of ads and you got to check the box, put it back in the mailbox, which is really a pain. And I haven't still figured out how to get rid of that. I'm like, geez, could they not simply just, you know, add on to the CCPA, just a a little, you know, footnote saying it includes anything you send in the mail, not just digital. That'd be awesome. Not that it probably will happen, but that'd be the coolest thing. Yeah. I mean, look, it happens across all channels, right? So direct mail and email. In the survey that we did of the 2000 consumers, we found that 62% of them, they would unsubscribe to an email and then you get another email. And this is because the systems are actually not connected and there's no universal sense of consent across applications, right? So HubSpot will send emails for HubSpot. And if you unsubscribe from HubSpot, that's great. But if the customer service team are using SurveyMonkey, they may survey that same consumer and ask about what their experience was after they just unsubscribed from the HubSpot email. 
So data rail addresses that too, because this consent and preferences problem permeates through all applications that communicate with a consumer. And transparently, it's a big part of why people submit privacy requests in the first place, right? They clicked unsubscribe and then it just didn't work. They got another email, a survey, and they're like, okay, at this point, you need to delete my information. I just can't seem to unsubscribe from your company. So that workflow, we address that as well. That's actually interesting. So I think for the most part, that's happened to everyone. I hit the spam button in Gmail and I'm hoping it's gone. And somehow something else crops up and you just delete it. And I really hadn't clicked. Oh, maybe I actually need to go find that privacy law and tell them to delete all the information. So I just kill it at the root cause. I mean, I know they did the uh, do not call list a couple of years ago and that worked seemingly fine. And then now, regardless of how often I register, I'm still getting spam calls, which it's kind of like, there's no other means of action to that, at least with deleting information. It seems like a kind of finality in the process of dealing with a particular company. Correct. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that I described, right? 80% of consumers want control. So you want to be able to say, hey, I don't want the spam call. Thank you. And I want you to delete my information. And then it's done, right? You won't hear from that company again. Again, that's a change, right? So socioeconomic change of just now the sheer number of calls you're getting on your phone, the direct mail you get for perhaps insurance offers or you know rental properties that you're not looking to rent. This type of information is sort of overloading the consumer. And so that's sort of why we're here. But mechanically, actually stopping that is very challenging for businesses. And that's kind of why we exist. Does Data Grill, would they ever extend outside of the digital footprint? Is that, I'm not the to share it, but I was just curious because it sounds like it's conceptually simple to extend somebody's you know data footprint now that you're seeing all the systems to go, hey, do not call this person. There's a suppression list. Don't get yourself in trouble. Yeah. So, I mean, we do that today. We actually have a number of retail brands that you know, they have direct mail uh, catalog services that they use. And so, you know, if someone does submit a do not sell request, they are, you know, not allowed to now pass that information to other catalog providers, which historically that was a huge business, right? Data brokers would sit in the middle between two catalog services and essentially make profit margins between transferring your information and my information between catalogs. This whole area, right, is a technology problem. And that's why, you know, myself, my two co-founders, we don't actually come from a privacy background or a security background or a legal background. Rather, we come from the background of the applications themselves because that understanding is fairly unique at this point. And I think the sort of existing providers that try to address this market, you see a lot of people come from either, you know, a legal background or some form of consulting background. But the challenge is, is that, actually understanding the nuances of how these interconnections between applications exist, that's the sort of problem at its sort of root cause. And I guess just a side question to that, and I always find it interesting when I talk to founders, when was the aha moment of, oh, smokes, I think we just stumbled upon a problem that we can actually maybe scale into business. When did that happen for you or for the three of you, I guess? So it's a good question. I would say there are a few points. You know, one. We launched pretty naively on Product Hunt May 25th, 2018, looking to address GDPR and challenges with GDPR. And frankly speaking, I, you know, we didn't know how much traction we were going to get from that. And there was sort of a first point of, oh, actually, this is quite challenging for people. We didn't really do any promotion, but still we saw a lot of people trying to interact with the application. And then I'd say, you know, within the first four to five months, 
we saw you know multi-billion dollar technology companies coming to us asking for help and i think at that point it was very clear that you know a company that has 300 500 software engineers that could easily build datagrail on its own is asking for help from a three person company there's a problem there and so at that junction you know going into 2019 we very much knew that this was a market and the existing providers were just not satisfying or providing a cohesive solution which was further sort of validating our research that we got back from the 300 privacy and security professionals and just you know whatever they have bought hasn't worked and what are their maybe they put in place without a system itself that's not working either so there was sort of like a few steps of just validation that yes this is a market yes we're addressing the right problem and yes the existing solutions are not actually solving the problem very cool i think you found the initial problem and then it kind of just mushroomed into just a full-fledged solution that's you know yeah it's ccpa that's covering the nation all of a sudden you got america and europe covered it's pretty cool correct awesome you mentioned that you're starting a podcast. I, I enjoy recording podcasts. I like listening to podcasts. And I just wanted to kind of touch on that real quick in terms of what were you you know, hoping to achieve with your podcast and kind of what sparked the idea to, to start one and kind of see what you think there. So this is a super sneak peek. So anyone that's listening to this point is going to hear first that, yes, we are launching a podcast at DataGrail called Grailcast. And so you'll likely start to see the first few episodes towards the end of this month or going into September. The preface for that was really, again, looking at sort of the existing materials that exist around privacy. What we saw was that, again, a lot of consultants, a lot of individuals that have legal background and the executive, so the individual who really takes ownership of the privacy program and may not be as involved in the day-to-day doesn't have a medium to really understand what they need to do, right? So. What we saw was that they're the practitioners, right? There's a lot of materials available for them to kind of ensure that they are actually executing on what they're supposed to be looking at. But understanding it at the executive level, if you are leading security or leading legal or leading IT or leading compliance, what is it at a high level you should be aware of from a privacy standpoint? So really like top line insights for the executive and for their peers. Sounds pretty interesting. I mean, this is a very gray area type of subject where there's so many different permutations of examples. And I think, you know, people who are doing it, like you said, the consultants have a great bird's eye view, but everyone else is trying to just absorb and understand and be compliant. I think that's going to be an amazing podcast. Good for you guys. Yeah, no, we're excited about it. And um, yeah, I've enjoyed this one. And thank you for the invitation, Amir. Absolutely. Thanks for being on. I appreciate your time. If somebody does want to reach out to you, is there a preferred avenue? Is you know LinkedIn, Twitter? Is there anything you prefer somebody to reach out? Yeah, so I am on the white pages of the internet, otherwise known as LinkedIn. So if you just search my name, Daniel Barber, you'll find me there. I am on Twitter as well. So if you search Gaijin Dan, so a little funny story, that is foreigner, so foreign person in Japanese. As I lived in Japan for a couple of years, that kind of just stuck. <laughs> and uh, if you want to contact me my email, I am giving you my consent. So you can send me an email at daniel at datagrail.io. Awesome. And we'll get all that uh, posted with the show notes so that somebody could reach out with any follow-up questions and 
everyone can keep an eye on the Grillcast that will be launching soon. And thanks for everyone listening to this episode. I appreciate your time. Please leave a review if you like the podcast on your favorite medium that you're listening to this on. And also let me know if there's another question, topic that we should be covering in, in a future episode. But thank you very much. Thank you.